before we look into the Word. Lord, I can't help but think that as we approach the time in which we're sowing the seeds of your Word, we know clearly in the teaching of Jesus that the evil one, the devil himself, would love to snatch away these seeds and not have them applied to our hearts and to cause people to be distracted and to think this must apply to somebody else or to think that uh, we're beyond all this. But Lord, I pray that you would uh, take the seeds of your word and I pray that your Holy Spirit would apply those to our hearts, that you would humble those who need to be humbled today, Lord, and lift the burden of guilt and shame from those, Lord, who feel that heavy burden this day. And may Jesus Christ be glorified, we ask, in his wonderful name, amen. We, as citizens of this nation, are living in an age of terror. Citizens, civilians who are going about their business in malls or going to work in a skyscraper office building or riding in a plane or a train or even standing as a bystander to an athletic event, civilians are being targeted by destructive enemy forces around this world. And law enforcement officials and military experts insist that one of the best ways to provide protection is to understand one's foe. I came across a quote by the director, former director of the FBI, Louis Free. He gave testimony soon after the Oklahoma City bombing in which he made this interesting statement regarding terrorists. He said this, The first rule of self-defense is to know the enemy who is intent on destroying you. Know your enemy. As citizens of a holy nation, the church of Jesus Christ is engaged in spiritual battle. And every follower of Jesus Christ is up against a formidable spiritual enemy and his cohorts that assist him. Matter of fact, years ago, Donald Gray Barnhouse, that great uh, preacher uh, who was very influential in my father's uh, life, this is going back quite a ways, probably back in the 40s and 50s, he wrote a book about the conflict between the devil and Jesus Christ, and he called the book The Invisible War. If you turn in your Bible to page 1394, Ephesians chapter 6, Pew Bible 1394, Ephesians 6, verse 11, you see very clearly that the Apostle Paul didn't pull any punches when he urged the Ephesian church members to be ready for this spiritual battle. It is a reality. It is not something that's make-believe. And what does he say in verse 11 of that wonderful text, chapter 6, verse 11? He says that they are to be ready by putting on the full armor of God that you as believers, the members of that church there in Ephesus, the members of this church here, you may be able to stand firm against what? Against the schemes of the devil. You see, the enemy of God is not stupid. He is clever, and he has adopted a number of tactics that he uses against the people of God. 
And Paul, having spent years planting churches and starting fellowships of believers in all sorts of places in the first century, he admitted that he had first-hand knowledge of these schemes. He's seen the evidence of Satan's attempt to try to oppose his endeavors, 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And so I want to be careful having said those things in my introduction here. Now hear me out now. Well, be careful that you don't hear me say that I'm trying to exaggerate Satan's power and his strength. Some people see Satan behind every tree and every problem and every single thing, and they, that's all they think about, and they give Satan too much credit. I want to say, first of all, that Satan is a fallen angel. He is therefore a created, finite being. He is unable to be everywhere at once. And his power is limited. His knowledge is incomplete. But I will say this, he is focused and he is stubborn. And he is determined to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Now here's the good news. The good news is that he is a defeated foe. When you look at the record of Jesus Christ, We're told that Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, went through a time of testing. He was out in the wilderness. He faced Satan one-on-one. I would never want to do that. But he did. And Jesus successfully resisted every one of those devious temptations and schemes that Satan threw at him. Praise God. It is Jesus Christ who defeated Satan and triumphed over Satan and the forces of evil in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Read Colossians 2 sometime and find yourself feeling encouraged that indeed Jesus won a decisive victory over him. As followers of Jesus Christ, we need not to be paranoid about Satan. That's not what I'm trying to do this morning. But we do need to be prepared for battle. Turn in your hymnal if you'll take it just a second. Pull that hymnal out and look at number 333. 333. We're not going to sing it, but I want you to look at some of the words here. We need to be prepared for battle. Martin Luther, who wrote this hymn that you'll see there, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, based on Psalm 46. In this well-known hymn, listen to how he strikes this balance. Here's the kind of balance I want us to have. He strikes a balance by describing Satan as a doomed foe. He says there, Our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. In other words, he is a formidable foe. There's no question. But then continue reading. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. I've often wondered, what was that little word? Because that that word is not capitalized. It's not the word Jesus. It's obviously referring to Jesus, but I think it means the one Greek word that was uttered by Jesus the moment before he died on the cross in which John 19.30 records it, it's one word in Greek, it's three words in English, it is finished. That word was the death blow to Satan. So, one of the admonitions in the writers of the New Testament 
right again and again as you keep reading it is the call for the people of God to be vigilant, to remain spiritually alert. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, page 1443 in your pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter writes, and again, it's interesting that Peter would include this now because Peter knows what? Peter knows the influence of Satan because it was Jesus, Peter talking to Jesus one time and he made a comment saying, no, no, you'll never die on a cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> He's aware of how Satan can be deviously and trick, tricky. But notice this, 1 Peter 5, 8, it says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Why is, why is that such an important thing in the Christian life? He goes on to tell why. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You can add to that 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, or 1 Corinthians 16, 13. repeats the same thing. Be on the alert. Be on the alert. I don't know about you, but I have never had to stay up all night in my life for studying because I never could do it. I would make a terrible security guard. After about the hour of 1 o'clock in the morning, I may have stretched myself maybe to 2. At 2 o'clock, I am worthless. Seriously, I cannot stay awake. I will fall asleep sitting up if I have to. I am I'm not a good person to be on call as a security watchman during the night. And if you're like me, spiritually speaking, all of us have a tendency to become spiritually drowsy. We're urged to keep watch in the text of Scripture again and again. It's because our spiritual senses need to be on high alert. Because we need to be on the, regarding the attacks of the evil one. He has his schemes. We need to be aware of those things. We need to not just go through life thinking, oh, everything's easy, nothing to no one going on today. No, don't slip into this state of you know, some kind of stupor. But don't assume that you're invulnerable from the schemes of the evil one. Don't just think he comes after me or, or the person sitting beside you. He's out. If you're serious about following Jesus, he is obviously concerned to try to steer you away from the direction you're headed in. He's crafty and he's deceptive. He's also devious and determined. So we need to remain spiritually alert. So this morning I want us then to encourage us to this kind of vigilance to not let our guard down. And I want to do it with just looking at two, just two schemes of Satan. That's all we're going to cover today. I've been looking at other ones on different Wednesday nights. But let's, and again, screw tape letters would be a good read if you ever want to get a, a, an interesting insight into C.S. Lewis's attempt to try to help us understand how Satan thinks and works. But this morning I want to look at this, and I want to do so by starting off just talking about Satan just for a moment. If I were to ask you, you don't have to answer out loud, but just think for a moment in your head, if you were to be asked, what one word would you use to describe Satan's primary character trait? Don't say it, just think about that for a minute. If you're going to boil all of those things down, whatever you know about Satan at this point in your life, if you were to use one word to try to describe him, what word would that be, I wonder? Well, I would suggest to you one of his primary attributes is pride. Pride. You say, where do you get that? Wouldn't you say evil? Well, yes, I would say evil, but I would start with pride because that is the source of his evil. 
his proud heart. We read in Ezekiel 28, you can look it up some other time, that Satan's heart was elevated while he was originally an angel created to serve God. He's there in the presence of God, and his heart becomes elevated and lifted up against God, and Satan was unwilling to remain content with the role that God had assigned to him as a serving or ministering servant or angel of God. He said, I don't want to stay here and do this. I don't want to be helping. I want to be the one who's worshipped. That's pride, my friends. That is ugly, flagrant pride. And so he yearned to make himself like the Most High God. And his arrogant heart convinced him that he deserved better than what he was receiving. And he was not content to there just sort of remain serving God. He insisted on being worshipped as if he were God. So he longed to have other angels serving him and his interests. And the scriptures teach that God therefore cast him out of heaven along with those angels who chose to follow him and go with him. And therefore we understand, the Bible has said it once, it says it a number of times, that God is opposed to proud people. And the reason why God opposes them so clearly, I think, is explained by C.J. Mahaney in his book, which I commend to you, Humility, the True true Greatness. Humility, True Greatness by C.J. Mahaney. He gives this very helpful pride quote. It's in your notes. Pride is when sinful creatures aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon Him. Pride is when sinful creatures who are made by God, aspire to the status or position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon Him. That's a very helpful uh, definition of pride. And of course, this is the reason why devil was cast out of heaven. And it is why in his proud heart today, the devil still despises God's supremacy. He doesn't like the fact that God is supreme over all. He wants to be supreme overall. And so our point number one this morning we're looking at here is that Satan encourages God's people to have an elevated view of their rights, an elevated view of their abilities, and even an elevated view of their importance. You find this indicator of this in the New Testament a number of times. There's examples of how pride is and how Satan uses this pride. Uh, and, and therefore, we read uh, that everyone is vulnerable to it, including church leaders. You say, oh, church leaders, they couldn't be filled. Oh, yes, they can. Look at 1410, page 1410 in 1 Timothy 3, and there's an interesting warning that Paul gives to his younger trained uh, mentor, Timothy, and he says, listen, Timothy, when you're selecting men and appointing them to be elders in a church. Be careful here, he says. He oh, cautioned Timothy against appointing an immature believer to eldership in the church. 1 Timothy 3.6, page 14.10. An overseer must not be a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Isn't that an interesting statement? All under the understanding of what? Here's the danger of pride. 
a new believer is vulnerable to an elevated view of his own importance if he's not careful. And he can easily then be duped into believing that he's better than those who are underneath him. So he can begin to draw the wrong conclusion as to why he's in that position. He thinks he's better than everybody else. And boy, watch out at that point. He can have a heart that's steeped in overconfidence. And that will eventually lead to the same outcome that the devil received. And what was that? Demotion. <laughs> you're not going to remain proud and arrogant and think you're better than everybody you're called to lead that's offensive to God, it's offensive to the people of God, and therefore you shouldn't remain in that position. God does not tolerate arrogant leaders of his church. That's just one example. Here's another example of pride, a common scheme where Satan promotes pride among, I would say, the membership of a church, the membership of a local church. This is found in second chapter of 2 Corinthians. So you might make your way there, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, page 1374. Here we find the Apostle Paul addressing church members of this infamous church there in Corinth. And some of the members that he's writing to are refusing to extend forgiveness. They're refusing to actually extend a warm welcome back into the fellowship of someone who had recently undergone church discipline. So I want to pick it up in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. He's talking about how the church took steps against the one who was in sin. So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, Paul says, I urge you to reaffirm your love for, I would say, the offender. Reaffirm your love for that person. They have repented. You should welcome them back in. Look at verse 11. He says, you should do this in order that no advantage be taken of us. By whom? By Satan. For we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes. Let me tell you something, folks. Pride is a destructive factor anytime there is unwillingness on the part of Christians within a church to forgive a repentant fellow believer. When a fallen believer bears the fruit of true sorrow, that is, they make it very clear, it's obvious that they have turned from their sin, they are repentant, and therefore they have come acknowledging that. And if other believers at that point continue to shun that believer, continue to show them the cold shoulder, continue to, to, to sort of hold their hearts guarded against them and not welcoming them and expressing the love they have for him as a fellow child of God, redeemed and saved, and they avoid this person, they don't speak of him, and they act as if he still is sort of needs to be disciplined a little more. You need to do something else to make yourself right here in this fellowship and treat him like a second-class member of the church. Let me tell you something. The evil one at that point, he is very active in carrying out one of his schemes that undermines the gospel, and that is to suggest that somehow some of us are on this plane and blessing, and other people are on this plane of functioning in the Christian life, and they are on a second-class citizenship. And proud hearts, my friend, are nothing more than loveless hearts. 
And loveless hearts are prone to magnifying the faults of other people. And pride is a massive roadblock that hinders people from becoming what? Reconciled. When there has been a falling out, when there has been someone that's wandered away, pride is oftentimes the obstacle that keeps that, particularly when this person is repenting and they've already said they're wrong and they're asking and they, they cannot be reconciled. My friend, pride is that big stone, gigantic boulder in the way. We've got to pray and hope and ask God to help us be aware that pride is dishonoring to God because it dishonors and ruins the picture of what the unifying gospel of grace and mercy is meant to do in the body of Christ. There's one other one I want to add to our thought this morning about pride and how it manifests itself as a scheme of Satan. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, would you, just for a second. Ephesians 4, verse 26, it's page 1392 at the bottom of the page there on the Pew Bible. Ephesians 4. This is where pride may evidence itself in an individual believer. This could be happening perhaps uh, in a marriage situation, for example. It could happen with just a, a personal friend. It could happen with a member family, a, a member of their family, an individual, someone that you're having an issue with, one person and you're one person, and we've got something going on here. And Paul says this, verse 26. Be angry. It's okay to be angry. Did you know that? It's all right to be angry. But he warns us about true anger that's appropriate anger. He says, and yet do not sin in your anger. So there's non-sinful anger, and then there's sinful anger. So he's going to tell us, what does it mean for sinful anger to become sinful? Well, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Ooh, okay, now here's the connection between sinful anger and here is Satan. Again, using this as a means of taking this as scheme and using his own influence here to pollute the, pri- the hearts of individual believers in this area now of sinful anger. Anger that stews and simmers. Anger that just sort of goes underground. Anger that is held onto for a long, long time is anger that gives Satan an open door to accomplish his agenda. The heart that has become embittered a heart that is full of resentment, a heart that will continually point out someone's fault and someone's sin and somebody did this, I can't believe it, and they keep harping on that and focusing on that, even though there have been attempts to try to say the other person has repented, is a heart that is easily influenced by the evil one to bring about further division, to bring about further discord among the members of the family of God. While in Scotland, uh, about two years ago, uh, Joyce and I were so blessed to be able to go visit our son who was there uh, studying for a semester in Edinburgh. And uh, in Edinburgh, the town is amazingly scenic, and one of the the most obvious points of interest that you cannot miss if you're approaching the city is on a knoll in the center of this ancient town is a castle. And the castle has a tremendously long history to it. It's a thousand years old. 
And as you can, tourists, uh, tourists are welcomed into it, you can enter this castle, and as you're going into it, you can see, as you go through the, the archway, the big massive doors that they've raised up, and you cross the bridge, and you come in here, you see how wide those walls are. They built those walls massively thick. And, uh, and, you, and you understand why, because the walls around that castle serve to protect and offer some sort of prevention for the access of the enemy to come in to get to where they are. Now, if an enemy comes and somehow by means of damaging that wall, I don't know exactly how they can do that, but sometimes they have these uh, means by which they can pound on that wall and knock some of those stones loose, and if they somehow compromise it and get an opening big enough to get a couple of people to begin to move through that opening. They may lose a couple people initially in that opening, but let me tell you something. If they get access into that castle, no one in that castle is safe. If there is a compromise in the wall, then the access of the enemy is to come in. No one is safe, and soon that castle may indeed be captured. Now, I like that kind of a, a, an illustration because I think this text here in Ephesians chapter 4 is saying a similar thing. It's saying, if we have unresolved sinful anger that is still stewing in us and is remaining a heart of bitterness in us, it's as if we've left in the wall of our heart, there is an opening, a vulnerability, a place in which Satan now has access, and he's able to wreak all kinds of havoc in our relationships. And Satan uses festering grievances to kill fellowship among believers and thwart the work of God came across this quote. It's quite good. You may want to write this one down. It's not in your notes. Someone once said, bitterness, bitterness is a poison that you drink that the, uh, sorry, let me say it again. Poison, bitterness is a poison you drink hoping that the other person dies. Poison is a bitterness you drink hoping that the other person dies. What's the point here? Bitterness is a poison that poisons our own souls. It poisons us and robs us of joy, robs us of satisfaction in God. So what do we say about this area of pride? I would just say this. Take up the sword of the Spirit, read the Word of God, and preach the gospel to yourself again and again and again. Ask God to remove from your heart any root of bitterness. Ask the Lord to search you. Say, Lord, is there anybody I haven't forgiven in my past? Is there anybody I need to reach out to and say, I need to seek out this person. I've missed it. I need to come and say to them, listen, this was going on then. I want you to know I don't want it to continue on now. I'm going to let you know. I'm it may go way back in your past. It may be yesterday. It may be 10 years ago. It may be who knows when. But my friend, if you have that thing still in your heart, I would urge you, take action in that area. Hearts that are humbled by the gospel do not harbor resentment. How do you know that? Well, look at verse 32, the same verse. Actually, 31 and 32. It's amazing how Paul links these things together. The wisdom of his writing here obviously is spirit-inspired because he says, listen, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you with all malice. Malice means I want to get even, I want to do something to them to bring some kind of harm to them. He says, no, 
be kind one to another. If I understand the gospel and what God's done to me, I want to have a heart that's kind. I want to have a heart that's tender. I want to have compassion for this person. And I want to be able to forgive them. How? Just as God in Christ has forgiven me. That's the gospel, my friend. The gospel says I've got to have my heart brought about to where it becomes kind because I look at what God has done to me. Does your heart celebrate the forgiveness of God? A forgiveness that has granted you, granted me, through Christ's atoning sacrifice, a forgiveness that says I am no longer guilty and he's not going to hold that against me that I have to pay it off someday? Is your heart willing to make the promise that you will no longer demand payment for a sin that was committed by someone against you sometime in the past and you're willing to say, listen, I'm going to let that go. I'm not going to hold it against you. Pride will focus on other people's faults and overlooks oftentimes our own. So, let's be awake, be alert, be on the lookout for a prideful heart. Okay, secondly, I want to point out real quickly here, uh, Satan also accuses God's people so that they will lose their joy and their calmed assurance and the peace which the gospel provides. Look at Revelation chapter 12, if you will. I'm sorry I didn't write down the number on that. Revelation 12, you know where the last book of the Bible is, right? All the way in the right-hand side of your Bible, chapter 12, verse 10. I am convinced this is one of the schemes that Satan uses in my life again and again and again. I'm not saying I'm beyond pride. I am, I am a person that struggles with pride, obviously. But I'll tell you right now, I have, I'm a person that has seen God help me in this area, and I trust he will help you. There's some of you that really need to hear this like I've needed to hear it through my life. Another scheme that Satan will use, and he loves to use it against believers, is to bring guilt and shame and condemnation upon you over and over again. Look at Revelation 12.10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. He is relentless in his desire to not only entice Christians to sin, that is, he'll say, oh, this is no big deal. Did God really say that? They all surely die. He'll minimize the seriousness of sin, yes, but he also, on the other hand, he will thoroughly delight when we do step over the line and transgress and break God's laws. He will magnify the guilt that we have incurred with such sin to the point which he will say, You'll never, ever put this behind you. You will have to have to face this the rest of your life. This is going to hang over you. This will be the, the red scarlet letter you'll wear the rest of your life. Satan loves to accuse God's people. He loves to heap shame and disgrace upon their consciences so that we lose sight of God's grace. We lose sight of the cleansing power of the cross of Christ. And one of Satan's goals, I'm convinced, is to keep on accusing us so that the focus of our attention becomes ourselves. 
we focus on ourselves and our failings and our sins and the areas that we've done wrong. And his intent is to have us remain under indictment. He wants us to feel guilty. He wants God's people to live under this cloud of condemnation. And if left to fester, that type of dark cloud can lead to excessive guilt, spiritual depression, and even despair. It means that we will not have a desire to spend time in his word. Who wants to talk to a God when you feel so ashamed you can't even lift your head to talk to him? Who wants to do anything for Christ? Who wants to ever share Christ with a neighbor or friend or stand up and boldly declare Christ to anybody when I feel like I'm, I'm a rotten, shameful person who doesn't deserve anything from God and therefore I've, I can't even enjoy his favor because I said or did this? Let me ask you, my friend, does your mind continually review your failings before God? Are you plagued with feelings of doubt and hopelessness and shame? Do you tell yourself, God could never forgive me for what I did? Or God could never forgive me for what I thought or imagined? God could never forgive me for what I said? My friend, be on the alert. Be on the alert. This is one of Satan's schemes. He loves to accuse and condemn. And when your guilty conscience is weighing you down, I have one thing I want to say to you. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Come to the one who died in your place for your sin. Come to the one who justifies those who are ungodly. He justifies us on the basis of his atoning sacrifice. Come to Christ who promises us the promises in the gospel, which are what? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful, he is righteous and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friend, hear those words of the gospel. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He is our advocate. He stands before the throne of God. He makes intercession for his saints. And in the second chapter of John's epistle, as we read there earlier, offers this gospel assurance. If anyone sins, and we all do, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus, the righteous one, the one who never did anything wrong, the one who says, I kept the law perfectly. He stands there in our place before the throne of God, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, the Bible says. The propitiation is what? That is a perfect, satisfying sacrifice offered to God to remove the wrath of God from those who deserve it, like you and me. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. He is our defense attorney. He is our advocate. That's a better way to look at it. He's our defense attorney. He is, as, as Satan is going to sit there as the accusing prosecuting attorney, he's pointing his finger at us, saying, oh, look at this guy. Look at this young lady. Look what they did. Look what they said. Jesus forever is going to declare before God that the wrath of God has been dealt with fairly and squarely through his, through his death on the cross and our sin and that need to have it. It's been fully satisfied. He took care of it all. 
And there's no way, Jesus will say, that God in his justice will charge a person twice for the same sin. It's been paid for, paid in full. And so Jesus bore on the cross the punishment we deserve. Let me invite you to turn to Romans 8. Just let's end on this incredible triumphant note. Romans 8, page 1347. My friend, if you've come and you have a heavy heart and your conscience is so weighed down with your sin and so condemned, may I urge you to read this text of Scripture until you see the light of the gospel shining in your heart and soul? Romans 8, 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? The answer is Satan. That's the answer. We all know it. But look at this. God, however, is the one who justifies. He declares us right with God. Who is the one who condemns? Satan. But then he gives the, he gives the word of hope. Christ Jesus is the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. For every word of condemnation that Satan throws at you, my friend, turn to Christ. Turn to Jesus. Say, thank you, Lord Jesus. That's not the voice I'm hearing from you. That's the enemy. That's one of his schemes. He wants me to be living a life of as if I'm a beggar and a a poor outcast when I'm a child of God, loved by the Father, forgiven. Satan constantly wants to point out our problems. The Spirit of God, my friends, he points us to the solution to our problems. It is Christ. And so I would say to you, my friend, it is helpful and it's true. It is helpful to know about our enemy. It is helpful He is the enemy of our souls, and we do need to be familiar with his schemes. But my friend, listen to this. It is much more essential that we know and trust and fully rely upon Christ, who is our defender, who is our savior, who is our advocate, who is our justifier, who is our substitute, who is our victor over our enemy. Let's pray. Oh God, how we come to you as sometimes being afraid to face our enemy. Lord, we often find ourselves wanting to sit on the sidelines. Just take it easy in the Christian life. We don't want to have to take up a sword. We don't want to engage in battle. We want to just be comfortable. And Father, I pray today that you would make us Vigilant and, and, uh, and alert and wide awake believers, aware that we are engaged in battle. But Lord, I pray that in our engagement in that battle, we would engage with a confidence, not in ourselves, but in Christ. Help us today, Lord, to have our eyes focused on Jesus Christ. If there's somebody here today, Lord, and they've never come to Christ, They've never felt the weight of their sins till just today when we started talking about this. Lord, I pray that you would help them to know they can be forgiven. They can have eternal life in Christ. Even today, Lord, help them to humble themselves and cry out to Christ. Save me, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying for me. Thank you for welcoming me as your child as I receive Christ by faith. 
And Father, I pray today that we might have the gospel encourage us, the gospel humble us, the gospel motivate us, Lord, to take action, to deal with our hearts and maybe areas where you've become stuck with a form of resentment or bitterness, Lord. Help us, we pray, to follow the Spirit's lead and may the Spirit of God lead us to Christ today, to fellowship with Him, to enjoy Him, and to celebrate Him. He is our victor. He is the one that we have absolute confidence in because we fail and we are weak. We thank you that he is the captain of our great army. We pray in his name. Amen.